Welcome to the Canny Conversations podcast, Conversations with a Cause with social entrepreneur Safraz Ali. He coined a phrase that describes what he does as the mad entrepreneur. That's make a difference entrepreneurship. As well as being the author of the Canny Bites books, Saf's business interests cover health and social care, business and corporate events, as well as him being the CEO of Pathway Group, a welfare to work and skills provider. In each episode, we have a special guest joining Saf in discussion with journalist and broadcaster Adrian Kibler. In this special episode, Saf and Adrian talk to the acclaimed war reporter Lynn O'Donnell. She talks about her experiences working in some of the world's biggest trouble spots, including Afghanistan and Iraq. So let's join the conversation. Hello and welcome to another Canny Conversation with a Cause. Uh, Saf, we're, uh, we're privileged today, aren't we? Absolutely. We've got a very special guest with us today and this is a slightly different conversation to the, uh, to the ones that we normally have because we've got with us uh, Lynn O'Donnell. Lynn is a war reporter, war correspondent. She's covered uh, many of the major conflicts across the globe over the last two decades. Um, she covered the uh, Iraqi war, she covered the... Afghanistan conflict and was on, I think, Lynn, am I right, the last commercial flight out of Kabul last year? Is that as, correct? Yes, as I understand, yeah. So that's pretty special stuff. Absolutely, and we've we've also had the afternoon with Lynn as well, with the Birmingham Press Club. Yes, we, 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 this afternoon we've been, um, Lynn has been speaking at the Birmingham Press Club and she's joined us for this podcast after that. There are three particular areas that we want to talk about in this podcast, we want to talk about education, we want to talk about business, we want to talk about the economy, we want to talk about, in particular, diversity, which I know is something that uh, that you're very, very keen on championing in SAF. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's, a, there's a lot to talk about. We also want to get to know Lynn as a person, uh, a little bit of background in terms of who you are, your makeup, your some of your insights. And, you know, we again, in terms of the uh, the session today, particularly the Q&A is very interactive as well with the audience and there's some fabulous questions that we, we, we got to uh, uh, listen to and hear. Yeah, okay, Lynn, let's, so, so let's start with the obvious question. What's a nice girl from uh, <laughs> Melbourne doing dodging bombs and bullets in some of the world's most dangerous places? How did it all happen? Was it a glorious accident or was it planned? Oh, I, I think a bit of both, to be honest with you. Um, I was a, a correspondent in China for newspapers and uh, wire agencies and I was on a train between uh, Urumqi and Kashgar on um, the 8th of September 2001 yeah. and I was woken up um, on a train in the absolute middle of nowhere um, the following morning by the lady who worked for me as a translator and fixer and general right arm in yeah. Beijing to say um, that the news from America she thought that I might be interested in hearing was that 30,000 people were dead in New York and the American mm. president was missing. And the, the world changed, you yes. know. China had been the biggest news story in the world for a very long time throughout the, the rise of its economy. And um, I had ridden that wave uh, professionally as a journalist and then all of a sudden nobody cared where China was or what was happening there. And so um, if I wanted to stay um, at the top of my field and on the front page, I had to go where the story was and that was to war and that's what I did and that's what I've done since then. 
Absolutely. I mean, uh, if I just go back to you know, how you were telling that story, uh, at, you know, at the session earlier on, you spoke about you know how freelancers are slightly different in terms of how they do things in comparison to the crews and the the TV aspect of it. You're now a freelancer, but you've had you've you've worked on both sides now. And you know, as a freelancer, you said you've got something about you know we need to have our wits about us. Uh, what's the makeup of, say, a freelancer? Because it's very much about entrepreneurialism, isn't it? It's about being out there, being in a position where it's about instinct and so forth. So, you know, not everybody can sort of shift to becoming a freelancer. There's a slightly different skills, different trait. Uh, so just talk to us a little bit about, firstly, about the differences. And so, and secondly, in terms of the world of journalism, how does it work in terms of uh, individuals like yourselves going out there and, and doing things? There is a, a, a huge difference. Yes. Um, when I uh, first started covering conflict and war in 2001 in Afghanistan, I was working for one of the biggest news organisations in the world, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch. I was a correspondent in China for the Australian newspaper, which is his uh, daily broadsheet flagship publication in Australia. Mm. But it also publishes The Times, The Sunday Times, Sky News, all of that. Mm. Um, enormous. But not very many people in Australia, Australian journalists at that time, had been war correspondents. I had worked for Reuters as well before. Um, I worked for The Australian and there, um, there is an imperative to work as a as a collective in big organisations. As a as a correspondent, as a newspaper correspondent, and the only one in China, um, I was pretty much telling my editors what I wanted to do. Uh, as a freelancer, I could I can still make my own decisions. But, you know, if you look at what happens with um, uh, television people, they they move as crews. Large groups of people, um, producers, camera people, uh, as well as a correspondent and security advisors, uh, you know, big television networks hire former soldiers who set themselves up as uh, security professionals who purport to uh, be able to tell where is the most dangerous place mm. at any moment of any day. And the organisations also have to have insurance uh, for the correspondents and all the people they have in the ground. And the, the security and the insurance becomes um, symbiotic, if you, if you like. And so there are some organisations I know where their insurance companies demand to know uh, every few hours every day where the correspondent is and they adjust premiums accordingly, uh, depending on what the security assessment of that particular geographical location is. Uh, when I was working for the Associated Press, when I was bureau chief in Afghanistan, uh, when I wanted to travel to do any uh, work, whether it was to get on a helicopter with the American forces or if I wanted to go independently to somewhere to do a particular story, I had to do a security assessment and answer a whole lot of questions before my editors would tell me that it was okay to go. And then a whole lot of questions about how I would be equipped, who I was going with, who I would be talking to, where I would be. So very complicated. But when I went back to Afghanistan in 2021 to cover the final months of the war against the Taliban there, I went as a freelancer and I was working with my friend and colleague Masoud Hosseini, mm. with whom I had worked at both AFP 
and AP when I was bureau chief at both of those organisations. Mm. And because we were freelancers, we weren't obliged to tell anybody where we were we going were. before we went. So we could choose to go to a particular place, a particular front line on the merits that we saw in the story that we wanted to cover. Very different. And really not so much more dangerous, even though we got into some scrapes, it might be said, not so much more dangerous because we were able to rely on our own wits and knowledge and contacts to uh, go into dangerous situations and assess the levels of danger ourselves and get the stories that we wanted to do. Um, And I much prefer working under those conditions, but maybe if I got blown up and lost a leg and didn't have insurance or Mm. a big organisation to have me airlifted off a nasty front line, um, I would feel very differently. But, um, But so far, so good. Touch wood, I should find something to touch, yeah. (laughs) When you go out to Afghanistan or to anywhere working as a freelancer, um, I mean, just just talk to me about if you're obviously working for an employee of somebody, then it's a bit different. I mean, do do you go out there and then try and find the stories and then try and sell the story in? Is that that the way it works or or do you go out as a freelancer but you've been commissioned to cover a story? Well, both. So... um, Last year, for instance, it's a last. You know, those last three months of the war in Afghanistan are a perfect example of how freelancing can work when it works well. I went out there with relationships with, for instance, with Foreign Policy magazine. I have a very close working relationship with them. Um, if journalism was different, if news organisations still had loads of money, um, I would be on the staff of Foreign Policy. They treat me as if. I am on staff. That's the relationship we have, but I'm not on staff. Um, But they took everything that I wrote and then beyond that I could write for other organisations. And as the story hotted up, Masood and I really brought the the Afghanistan war story into the international arena, I believe, with the quality of the work that we were doing. Then suddenly we were in huge demand for radio and television appearances worldwide. And so that's that's how it worked. People came to us. Uh, I, I'm going to make quite a lot of references to uh, the the talk that we've had. I mean, okay. I've got five, six pages of notes oh, here. So, <laughs> so, so you uh, be a journalist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I can't I can't write in uh, shorthand though. But there's a five, five, six pages here. You've got a quote here, which which I want you to. Uh, uh, share with the with with the listeners, which is you know it says here, fear is a sign of intellect. Fear is uh, is nothing to be ashamed of. And you know we talk about bravery and and so forth. And you know you talked about you know how you can be brave, but without actually it's not bravado. It's about again you know you talk about wit. Is you know you've mentioned that instinct, and it's also understanding, being emotionally aware, emotionally intelligent. So share share with us in terms of situations where you ask it, but you're still moving ahead, you're still walking ahead, and 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 how does that work in terms of a psyche of a person? I, I don't know whether whether you're able to add a little bit more there. If I'm, if, yeah, um, it's not something that I think about a lot yeah. um, because it does become instinctive, instinctive and yeah. instinctual. But what I say is um, fear is a sign of intelligent life. Yeah. And I, I do think that if you're not scared in those dangerous situations, then you shouldn't be there because fear is what pumps the adrenaline and keeps you aware and alert. We can't know or predict 
everything or anything, um, but we can be aware of the circumstances that we're in that, you know, for instance, if you're um, on a front line, don't stand by an armoured mm. vehicle because it's <laughs> going to be a target for somebody with an RPG on the other side of that front line. So awareness, knowing the sound of incoming versus the sound of outgoing, that sort of thing, you know, that's learned behaviour as, as well as anything else. But, yeah, I think being afraid is what I said no, is nothing to be ashamed of. Mm. Being afraid is what keeps you alive. So you spoke about leadership as well and, and you said, you know what, there's strength in leadership. There's a there's a lack of leadership and uh, you know, and we you know, we commented on certain leaders and, and so forth. And in there's a seems to be a void generally in leadership, you know, in terms of politics and political figures. You know, why do you think that's the case? You know, it's I'm general we're generalizing here, but why do you think that's the case in terms of, you know, our leaders, world leaders? You know, are they really true leaders? I think that that's a very interesting question. I think leadership and character are tested in certain circumstances. Mm. And if we're talking about Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, for instance, he's facing a greater test than anybody should ever have to face. The guy was a, you know, a, a television soap opera star, a comedian, and was derided when he was elected president of oh, the Ukrainians. They've elected yeah. a comedian. Yeah. Um, but look at him. He's leading his country. I, I do think that there is a lack of understanding of what leadership is and how people react to leadership because they generally need leadership. And mm. I'll, if you don't mind, I'll give you an example Please. of something that happened to me. When I was the bureau chief in um, Afghanistan for Associated Press, I received a death threat by text message that was signed by um, ISIS. And I looked at it and I, th- and I thought, mm, okay, well, that's kind of funky. Um, I'd never actually heard of ISIS sending death threats to anybody by text, text message. message yeah. They just um, they just kill people, you know, <laughs> they just do it. Yeah. Um, it came after and it made specific reference to a story that I had written about a mobile radio station that was on the Afghanistan-Pakistan border and it was broadcasting into a, um, a particular area on, on the eastern border of Afghanistan to recruit people to the ISIS cause. They were paying more than ta- the Taliban was paying to mm. their gunmen, so why not, right? Mm. A couple of days later, the Americans bombed the radio station and killed about five people. And this text message I received made specific reference to that bombing and the the deaths of the people in the radio truck. And I thought about it. And because I was the AP bureau chief, I was very high profile. AP is the biggest organisation, news organisation in the world. Mm. And um, really, we were setting the agenda. We 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 did a very good job and we were very high profile. And when I made it known to people in Kabul that I had received death threats, there was a lot of investigation. A lot of organisations wanted to get involved in finding out where they came from. But in the meantime, I told my bosses in uh, New York about it and they wanted to close the bureau down and they wanted me to leave Afghanistan. And I said, I can't. I'm the bureau chief. Hmm. It's my job to be the bureau chief no matter what the weather is, whether it's sunny or snowy, you know, I have to be here and people Mm. have to see that Mm. they have a leader in me Mm. and that's my job. And so I refuse to leave. I think 
at the time, well, I like to think that it was very important to the people who were working for me and with me, who weren't just journalists who'd been covering war for, you know, 15 years. They were um, cooks and cleaners and drivers. And if I left because I got a text message from, you know, whoever it might have been that wanted to kill me for a story that I'd written, I'd be running away and leaving them there. And I thought that that would show a real lack of commitment to my job, a lack of commitment to them, also a bit of a middle finger up to them, you know, I can leave, see ya, not good, not good at all. And and so when I see, and I was talking before about, you know, Zelensky being a leader, he has stepped up and people are behind him Mm. and you know, he went and visited wounded kitties in a hospital a few days ago. That's real leadership. And there is an incredible hubris that goes with, I mean, you know, we're living in the United Kingdom. Yeah. Look what we've got. Um, it's been pretty poor. There is no uh, stepping up and taking responsibility and being accountable for mistakes or corruption or bad behaviour or, you know, it's... It's lacking. Any any other uh, noteworthy or remarkable world leaders that you think you know that are at that sort of stage where you know you can say they're, they're you know that's true leadership. Well, I think Jacinda Ardern in um, uh, yeah. New Zealand was yeah. the was the leader that New Zealand needed at mm. that time. Mm-hmm. Um, with the, you know during yeah. COVID, and she she really showed true leadership and won the confidence of. The majority, as far as I could tell, of people in New Zealand at a time when they really, you know, we were all very vulnerable and and suggestive and afraid for quite some time. And I I think she she stepped up. Yeah. Yeah. What's your own style of leadership? Because you've you've managed teams, you know, you talked about team of 40 and you know, you talked about teamwork and and so forth. So how how you know, you know, what's your you know, how do you work with people and you know, has that changed, has that evolved? Uh, well, I think it does evolve um, as you, because nobody teaches you how to do that, okay. especially in journalism. You know, you're just thrown into it. Yeah. Okay, go be a bureau chief. <laughs> oh my God. Um, and suddenly you've got, you know, when I was at AFP, it was 20 people working for me. Then AP, it was 40 people working for me. And um, when I say for me, I don't yeah. mean they were all taking orders, but not yeah. one word or photo or bit of video that left any of those bureaus did so without me having a hands-on role in it. And people came to me all the time for advice and to talk through things and, you know, even if stuff was happening happening with families. So, um, yeah, you learn as you go and you also learn the cultural sem- sensitivities not only of the country that you're living in but also within the office that you're working in because you're stepping into as a foreigner and as an appointee, um, you're stepping into a dynamic and already an organic situation that already exists. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can only look back and see how did I do that? Why was that successful? And I think that what happened in both of those bureaus in in a very dangerous situation at a very dangerous time was that I made sure, and I think this is fundamental, every single person in the bureau knew what everybody else was doing at all times. Not only so we weren't wasting time and effort um, duplicating 
tasks, but also so that everybody felt that they were invested in what everybody else was doing. And that's how you create a team. And so when we were successful, when we did break, you know, world beating stories, when we saw our stuff on local television, that we, we also beat the local, the locals at what they were doing, um, really important stories, we all felt that we had a stake in it. And I think that's really important. And, mm. you know, um, most of the people in both of those bureaus remain my friends. Mm. And when I went back to Afghanistan last year, when I was no longer the boss and the formality had melted away, those people who had just been colleagues were true friends and I was welcomed into their lives as a friend. Lynn, when you were running the Bureau, you said something really interesting. You know, you got quite a number of people who, who worked for you. But would they have been locals or would they have been people from overseas? Because I mean, how, looking at the diversity issue, you know, how would I, it, would it not be very difficult for a woman to, in effect, be the boss of people in those countries that, that have a particular view of the role of women? I mean, were, were the people that worked for you Afghans or were they? All Afghans and all Afghan men. So how did that work? It turned out that the death threat that I had received came from within the Bureau. Um, because, you know, if you get 40 Afghan guys at random anywhere in any room, let's say 10% are going to be mm. a little bit on the extreme side. Mm. And so a couple of those guys didn't like the fact that I was a foreigner and I was a woman and mm. I was the boss. But they wouldn't have liked the boss, whoever it was. And also I made the Bureau work, you know, mm -hmm. we were there to work and a wire service works 24-7 yeah. and they didn't like that. So there was the personal and the professional and the any foreigner would, would have been, you know, the enemy stuff ab about it and really that problem, that's their problem. But most people, people are people, you know, yeah. generally. But would any of your team have been female or was it all, an all-male team? No, they were all men. I was, all the, men. I was the only woman and the only foreigner. Were you able to pick your own team, Lynn? No, you know, I went no, into a pre-existing team. Existing team. And, yep. Okay. Yeah. And I brought in some people to work um, casually or when we needed extra staff, I did the hiring. Uh, but, no, I walked into a pre-existing team. team. In terms of, say, you know, you've got an existing team and, and you know, you always have some bad eggs in a team and yeah. some, you know, some mindsets that don't work and, you know, mm. you've got a vision that you're setting out and so forth. You know, you talk about hiring people, but were you able to sort of fire, at, you know, or let, let people go or this is a team no. that you've got and that's it? No, that that's one of the problems, I mm. think, with working um, in a satellite of a big organisation is that, as a bureau chief, I didn't have the power to hire and mm. fire. And I, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but what it meant is that there was one particular bad egg who I just didn't... Just didn't, yeah, yeah. He slept at his desk every day and yeah, that was fine by me because otherwise his stuff was poor quality, it wasn't accurate, It was he was a liability when he was awake. So that's how I dealt with that because I had no choice. I'm going to go a little bit back to uh, foreign policy. Well, not back to foreign policy. We'll talk a little bit about foreign policy. And you mentioned again uh, in, in the presentation about, uh, about Biden as a, as a president and his style of leadership and what he's doing. And you, you touched on uh, Donald Trump before. United States has a big role in, in the world, you know, regardless of you know what your viewpoint is. Uh, it has an impact in every single aspect of it. Where do you think... 
uh, United States role is currently in terms of the whole just the Pakistan India situation you know because I think the Toronto stare stared a little bit away from Russia India is sort of still trading with with Russia and you've got Pakistan who's got a different perspective and in my household we have a, a few Pakistani TV channels that we we, we look at so uh, and, and the news that we listen to there is slightly different to the news that we hear on the BBC particularly with regard to the current conflict and the situations going on so there's a sort of a the United States angle there's also in terms of the dynamics between Pakistan and India and your, your input if I can it's a fairly large topic there yeah but, it's huge yeah. um I spent all of February in Pakistan and it's not a country that I um feel very close to or that I have a real depth of knowledge mm-hmm. of. And my perspective on Pakistan was, you know, for a long time through the prism of Afghanistan, where, yeah. as I mentioned, yeah. um, uh, Pakistan is loathed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, was loathed, probably yeah. not by the Taliban now in control. Yeah. Um, I thought that it was very important for me to go to Pakistan so that I could understand the perspective of global international mm. relations, if you like, mm. um, from the Pakistani perspective. What I found was that it comes in layers, that there is um, a very, very different view point amongst the educated middle classes, if you like, um, to that of the um, hybrid civilian military government. And I believe that one thing I learned is that Pakistani people are very badly served by their leaders. government, by their by their so-called leaders, mm. um, that it is probably a, a, a corrupt criminal cartel, <laughs> if I can say that. Is that still current or is that, you know... Currently, yeah, currently, yeah. yeah. I think yeah, that yeah. The, the military is very assiduously um, and stealthily taking control of the... Of the institutions of civilian, yeah, of civilian leader, you know, of parliament, of the judiciary, certainly of journalism. I met journalists whose homes have been broken into while they've been in it by people who say that they're ISI, secret service agents, and beaten them up. Um, People are being sacked, they're being threatened, the news is um, very heavily censored, journalists are afraid to do their jobs. And I think... I believe passionately in the role of journalism in holding uh, power to account and that light in Pakistan is going out very quickly. I see the the military as taking over, they're they're on a land-grabbing crusade. They're dealing with or not dealing with two civil wars. Uh, There is terrible marginalisation of uh, some ethnic groups and incredible poverty and the bad management of the economy means that inflation is soaring and people are getting poorer. Middle class people are getting poorer every day, being driven into poverty. Um, so uh, I don't know. Does that mean? Does that answer your question? So, uh, How where, does it fit into the where, whole thing? Where's the United States relationship there in terms of the, the link? Well, there you know, the, they, there is a, a leadership. You know, Imran Khan is the prime minister at the moment, and the military have already said they'd like him to step down, probably because he's a bit incendiary. But he is very much on the back foot and very defensive when it comes to the Western, his country's relationship with the Western world, and I. think think that he is possibly heading for a, a historic judgment that he was on the wrong side of history because we are at a historical pivot 
And if Pakistan doesn't get this right, it will be on the wrong side of history. And I think that that is to the detriment of of Pakistani people. A friend of mine said, you know, Pakistanis have all got uh, Stockholm syndrome. The Pakistani passport is worth nothing. They can't go anywhere. They can't get out of their country. And yet they have such incredible potential. I just came away sad, <laughs> you mm. know. Just, just for the benefit of our listeners, because obviously one of the things with podcasts is they can be picked up at any time. They're very accessible. We're, we're recording this particular podcast with Lynn in the early spring of, of 2022. So that gives our listeners a point of reference if they are you know, picking this up at, uh, at some other time. Um, it's a fascinating conversation that we're having and we hope that if you're enjoying what we're doing, you'll like and, and hopefully share and subscribe. Lynn, I want to talk about something which you uh, have mentioned, which is the impact of, of the current situation in early 2022 in the Ukraine in terms of how that might bring, um, you know, a terrible situation with regard to famine and lack of food to um, a part of the world that you're very familiar with. Could, could you just talk us through that? Yeah, um, you know, the the Republic of Afghanistan that was supported for 20 years by the international i.e. Western Alliance, uh, collapsed on the 15th of August 2021. And then, you know, the Taliban took over and they're a really revisionist, extremist, misogynist, criminal organisation. And suddenly the world focused on hunger in Afghanistan, even though there's always, you know, always been hunger every year. United Nations organisations warned that we're heading into winter and kiddies will die of hunger. But the economy collapsed as well because the United States sanctioned economic activity and, and banned any dealings with banks there, for instance. And so that means that people, ordinary people's bank accounts are frozen. They can't put an, a card in an ATM and get their own cash out to buy food. And so the situation has really spiralled downwards with no money going into the central bank. Um, it means salaries for teachers aren't being paid with um, uh, no money going to NGOs, which had uh, funded the health sector, health workers also not being paid. So it's a very difficult and nasty situation. But how does this relate to Ukraine? Well, the World Food Program, for instance, buys about 70% of its grain from uh, Ukraine and Russia. And we're in spring 2022, spring planting is not likely to happen in Ukraine. So there will be a, uh, a much smaller crop. Russia has banned the export of a wide range of commodities in order to ease price pressures domestically. And that includes um, food, wheat, for instance, and fertilizer to the Central Asian states. Well, at all, but, you know, there are countries in Central Asia that rely on Russian exports, especially of fertilizer, but also of grains and sugar. Mm. So already in countries like Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and Tajikistan, um, we're looking at shortages of sugar and fertiliser and um, fruit and vegetables. Afghanistan relies on Central Asian countries for a lot of its 
supply of food, wheat, for instance, fruit and vegetables from Uzbekistan, as a for instance. Now, as shortages start to bite, and they will, um, in Central Asian nations, exports will also stop. Mm. And that means that food supply in Afghanistan will become even tighter and prices even higher. And so if we're looking at hunger now, hunger on the edge of starvation, we will probably see, in my own assessment, hunger tip into starvation and starvation tip into famine in the near future. Very interesting, uh, Lynn. Uh, uh, you know, we spoke, I mean, you all, you, you will, well, not we spoke, but you spoke a little bit earlier on about uh, fake news or we talked about, I mean, I think quoting you, you said the first, ca- first casualty of war is truth. Uh, I'm sure this, that's not original, but I said it. Yeah, but you've said it today. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and uh, this this world fake news, the, the word fake news has been in our vocabulary, oh. I think, now mm. for, a, for a number of years. Mm. Uh, and you, you talked about, obviously, how you know we, you source stories or how journalists uh, source their stories. So sometimes it's the rush to be the first breaking news. And there's another term here that I'm going to quote you, which I, I, th- I thought was fascinating, weak, woke West, that yeah. So, t- so tell us a little bit about this rush to be the first, the rush to get the news out there. And now we you know we're, we're you know we're, there's also another side to that, which is about slow news, actually understanding the news rather than breaking news. Mm. Tell us a little bit about what's going on in terms of this this rush to be the first breaking news. That sort of market about you know these stories. How do we as individuals? Get out information. You again said there's there's so much information out there, but it's a lot of it is about filtering through the noise and filtering through and getting your a source that you can sort of feel comfortable with and that tells you a holistic view as opposed to maybe a, a one sided view. I think it's a very complex but important issue. Uh, fake news uh, was was what the person who called it fake news didn't like, right? Well, that's rubbish. That's fake news. And then everything became fake news. And then we all became fakers and enemies of the people and liars and, you know, all um, following our own agendas or an agenda mm. of the, the agenda of the person, the company, the whatever that was paying us. I think that, you know, it's taken news organisations, mainstream news organisations, far too long to learn how to monetize the digital space. So I heard somebody on an American podcast describe it as, imagine if you go into a coffee shop, let's say a Starbucks every day, and you get your, you know, your mega caramel flavoured latte frothy stuff in a big cup for free. For free, yeah. And then one day you go in there to pick up your free coffee and they say that'll be $5, please. And you go, what? I don't want that. I've never paid for it before. Why should I start paying for it now? And that's what happened with news. We don't see the value in it. Yeah. So what I do had no value at all. Yeah. And nobody understood out there that I'm a cost (laughs) centre and that it's the advertising in the newspaper that pays for me to do what I do, not only my salary but insurance and, you know, health cover and pension and taxis to get to stories and planes to get, you know, all 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 of that stuff. Nobody quite understood it. And even now, even though, you know, there is a little bit more sophistication in the understanding of where information comes from and who gets it, because at least one thing that the fake news thing did was identify people as 
journalists, you know, oh, it's people who do that. It's people mm. who are doing the mm. so-called fake news. Mm. So there was a little bit of, I don't know, a silver lining in it. But um, I still get when I put stuff on Twitter, um, tweets back, I can't access this. It's behind a paywall. Can you, you know, put the whole thing out there? And I'm like, well, how do you think I get paid? If you don't pay for it, I, there's no money to pay me. Part of the complexity is also um, how the digital space has really been overtaken and taken advantage of by hostile players, if you like. Um, and Russia has been very good at this and China is also very good at th- They have armies of bots, if you like, mm-hmm. and, and um, people whose job it is to, to create bots and to create fake really fake, false news and put it out there and also to attack people like me and to undermine me as a professional journalist and paint me as making it up. And I found this when I was last year doing stories on the Taliban, stories that really had a an impact and were very important uh, were attacked for days and weeks on end and I was undermined and, you know, and Masood, even his photos were undermined um, by armies of Pakistan-based Taliban, pro-Taliban trolls. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, very dangerous, but people want ease. They want convenience because we're living in a convenient world. And so being able to get your news on a Twitter feed or a Facebook feed or YouTube channels, God, a cab driver in London the other day, he knew everything. There wasn't anything he didn't know because I watch, he said, alternative news. Okay. And I'm like, what's alternative news? He's like YouTube channels. I'm like, oh, my Uh, God. But information is out there if you have the wits and the time and the desire to source it but to look at a story like Ukraine, for instance, from every angle. And there is so much out there that is on just on Ukraine that can be verified that anybody with any brain should listen to a Kremlin spokesman yeah. saying, actually, it's the Ukrainians doing it all to themselves mm. and know that that's rubbish. I think we lack sometimes the attention span and uh, we, we look for the headlines or what's easy. You'd be sort of tend to figure people into good and bad continuously and I think that seems to be the cycle that we go through we don't yeah. there's no learning from that so and there's also a yeah. desire for sensationalism yeah. for the for the wow yeah. you know yeah yeah instead of the just this the information Absolutely. just how can I educate myself about this particular topic that is important I think another issue with the you know the the, the media world as it is now is is the danger of sort of confirmation bias because what you get is you've got, you've got algorithms that drive people to the places yeah. that yeah. almost create an echo chamber of the, yeah. their own particular views. So you don't get um, the opportunity to hear different points of views and, and different positions. One of the things that Safi's passionate about, Lynn, is education. I don't think he minds me saying that, you know, he comes from a family that came from Pakistan to um, to the UK when he was a youngster, you know, didn't speak any English and has gone on to, you know, to be a successful businessman. So so a huge passion for education. So I'd just like to, you know, perhaps we could talk a little bit about two things that come together. One is education in countries like Afghanistan. Mm. And the second is is diversity because as I understand it, you know, now the Taliban are back in charge. Uh, so much of the stuff that was happening in terms of getting girls into education yes. uh, has been put on hold or, or stopped. I know it's something which 
Um, it was hugely important and something SAF feels very strongly about. So to just give us your take on education in Afghanistan and diversity and what's happening now. Well, what's happening now is that um, education is a political bargaining chip. You know, the Taliban are using the education of girls um, as leverage for international support, money, charity, diplomatic recognition, and they're getting away with it. Most girls have not been able to go to school for the more than seven months since the Taliban took over. We were told by uh, some of our civilian and military leaders ahead of the collapse of the Republic that the Taliban had changed. They were okay now. They were reasonable. We could do business with them, kind of modern. Anybody who knew anything and had been paying attention for, you know, 25 years knew that that wasn't the case. And certainly most Afghan people knew that that wasn't the case. And I mentioned when I was speaking before that just three American, you know, U.S. government department, State Department, Defense Department and USAID between 2002 and 2021 spent more than $700 million just on programs for women and girls. And so we can assume, and, and they said, we know that it, this came out from the Special Inspector General of Afghanistan Reconstruction. Um, their job is to follow the money. And so they know that it's probably a lot more than that. It disappeared, it evaporated overnight, you know. Um, mm. And education for girls has ceased. And so what you have now is boys being educated according to a curriculum where they are taught numeracy by counting bullets and uh, reading by uh, the recitation of jihadist slogans as and there is glorification of suicide bombers. That's part of the current Taliban credo. And the girls are being kept in ignorance because the Taliban regards them as lesser human beings. Mm. And this is creating a black hole in Afghanistan because mm. it's if you don't educate women, you don't educate a family. But this is also bleeding into Pakistan where Imran Khan is courting right-wing extremist religious groups. And, you know, um, I was just there. I, I spoke to a lot of women's groups. It was ahead of International Women's Day. And um, I spoke to organisers of the uh, events to mark International Women's Day and they fear that Gains for women in Pakistan are also under threat and receding to some extent because those who would attack those gains are being given a confidence by what's happening next door in Afghanistan. And Imran Khan himself has says, oh, you know, education in Afghanistan, they never had education for their girls anyway, which is just like, you know, that's just mind-blowing that he would get away with saying that. Now, diversity in Afghanistan, you know, it's it's an issue. It, it's a country with a, with ethnic groups, Pashtuns, Tajiks, Uzbeks, Hazaras, and other smaller groups. And the Taliban are, are effectively and essentially a Pashtun nationalist movement. And um, 
there were a lot of problems with diversity under the Republic government of Ashraf Ghani and Hamid Karzai, uh, but now there's no accountability. So the Taliban are just getting on with excluding to a great extent, abusing, disappearing, killing extrajudicially um, Hazaras and Tajiks. Yeah. So if you've, you've been in Pakistan fairly recently, haven't you? I mean, what's your reaction to what Lynn says? How does that fit with your observations? So my family comes from uh, Azad Kashmir, which is what we call Free Kashmir in in, uh, in Pakistan, and uh, we're in a, uh, an area called Mirpur, which is uh, which majority of the British uh, Pakistanis are they come from that area, and one of the topics uh, continuously is, is the, the debate is you know these news channels are on, you know everybody thinks that we've got free uh, uh, sort of free press journalism is ripe and everybody you know is continuously watching either Pakistani dramas or sports or it's going to be news these are our top sort of three topics and whether whether you go to somebody's house or on the streets where everybody's talking about politics uh, so it, it is continuous and everybody thinks they're a journalist in their own right and they've got you know they can fix the world and so forth so it it is a hot topic I think there's an element where, as you said earlier on, uh, that relationship with Afghanistan is uh, predominantly being quite an aggressive type of relationship. You know, we Afghanistan feels that it's been used, and and Pakistan feels that they should be closer with us rather than with India, as an example, and so forth. And it's very very complicated. And I think, you know, it's one of these dinner type conversations where you just can't, you know, you, where you start or where you finish, you just, you know, you tr- it just doesn't get anywhere. Get a lot of shouting <laughs> in between. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I tend to sort of stay a little bit away from that and try and talk about other things and particularly in terms of the positivity there. Mm. There's, there. Mm. there's so much growth that's happening in some areas and but the difference between rich and poor is getting wider and wider, yeah. just like it is here. Yeah. And I think there is an economic issue there. There is definitely... Uh, you know, price rises, all of these concerns are there. Uh, but it's a very entrepreneurial, enterprising nation. There are a lot of startups, you know, they're you know, moving towards, uh, you know, digital skills, trying to sell themselves to the world. And, and really, you know, the average person, they're concerned about food on the table, roof over their heads, and progressive and progressing. That's what the average person is, is interested in. They're not really that interested in some of the bigger stuff. Yes, yeah. it's good to talk about it and know about it, but it doesn't help them on a day-to-day basis. People and we've got to people. go back to that. Mm. The hierarchy of needs is in it, isn't it? We know, we, you know, we've got to get that shelter, the food and so forth. And if you, if you can't get that right, then, you know, what's the point of talking about some of the, what we call the bigger stuff? Because yeah. that's predominantly for people who've, you know, who've got the basics. I mean, this is a, a, a special conversation, yeah. um, different format to normal. And the problem with having somebody like Lynn is we could be talking for Absolutely. ages. Absolutely. Um, so perhaps we, you know, we're coming perhaps towards the end of our time. But I think that, Lynn, I'd just like just taking up on the points that, that the SAF just raised, you know, from a, a business and an economic perspective. I mean, what is the, the economy of Afghanistan? I mean, is it all drugs? Is it, you know, I gather there's some precious metals and that sort of thing. I mean, what 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 sort of you know economic story is there, and 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 how do you see that going forward? Well, the economic story in in Afghanistan is all about potential, and 
really it's all about unrealised mm. potential. People, you know, like to say Afghanistan sits on a trillion dollars worth of mineral assets, mm. but it's only worth a trillion dollars if somebody gets, gets it out it, and yeah. gets a trillion dollars for yeah. it. Uh, the Chinese government uh, took ownership of um, a, a massive copper mine just not too far from Kabul mm. and um, has sat on it, promised the world, of course, and what their their plan sounded like they were going to do, what the, um, the Chinese communists did after the revolution was create a copper town, mm. you know, like they did like, you know, Shenyang was all about making cars and Baotou was all about mining coal, you know, that, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, and it never happened. And the reason that it never happened is because China is the biggest user of copper in the world. So as long as it sits on the second biggest high quality copper deposit in the world, it controls supply and price. Mm. It's the same with everything. There's, you know, Afghanistan has lithium, it has uh, talc, it has marble and uh, gemstone, you know, sapphires and, and, um, Emeralds and lapis lazuli and gold and coal. It's got, yeah, of course. It's, and even, it's even got um, oil and gas up north. But as long as it's in the ground, it's not worth it's anything not to anybody. Yeah. You know. I mean, do you find that people with people from that part of the world, you know, like Safras, who's, you know, quite entrepreneurial, very entrepreneurial in, in, in terms of attitude, or, or is that not possible to characterize people in that way? I mean, is it just a case that, like any other country, you know, there are those that are entrepreneurs and, and those that, that are not? Uh, I guess what I'm saying in a very inarticulate way is, are we talking about a people that, if they have the opportunity, you know, do want to get on and, and do things? You know, I think that um, people are people and wherever you go and wherever they're from, it's culture and language, are, they're ephemeral, right? And everybody wants... I believe most people want their kids to be educated and to be happy and to be fed. They want a roof over their house. They want to mm. know that they can a roof over their head. They, yeah. they they want to be able to walk out their front door in the morning and know that they'll come back safely at the end of the day. They'd like the buses to work and the telephone to work when they want to make a call. You know, everybody really wants the same thing deep down as human beings. And so, of course, in Afghanistan there are entrepreneurial people and there are people who aren't so entrepreneurial. Yeah. You know, um, I worked with journalists in Afghanistan for a long time and they have a passion for the news the same way I do. But I was also in China for a long time and beneath the repression of media by the Chinese state, Chinese journalists wanted to be journalists the same way I'm a journalist. You know, I just, I just think that it doesn't matter where you go, people are the same. The variety is the same, the diversity is the same, the desires, the ability to love or hate or, you know, walk down the road, it's all the same. And, and, and until we get to that point where everybody thinks that and believes that, we'll have problems, yeah, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we've got the advantage and we've got a, a few minutes. Yeah. Um, are there any particular issues that you'd like to just... Uh, I think I think uh, again I'll make reference to the uh, presentation, the the question and answers uh, session that we had earlier on, and we, we you spoke about uh, uh, post traumatic uh, stress disorder PTSD, and uh, you know there's a, there is a, a I think there's a, a sort of a, a phrase uh, which basically talks about folklore and war and how more people have killed themselves 
how many soldiers have killed themselves after the war and during during the war due to the uh, the stresses of of war and you know uh, the last few years we've all been talking about mental health and mental well-being and so forth and you know and and when you're going into these conflict and conflicting sort of you know difficult situations there's a you know this word again resilience you know has come in mind and so forth so how you know any sort of ways and techniques you say and what's your sort of general take in terms of you know, dealing with this stress, very stressful, very difficult situations, uh, any sort of general words and experience that you may have had with regard to mental health, mental well-being and, and just stresses of difficult situations because we all deal with different things in, in our own way. So again, it's a fairly big topic there. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Um, but you're talking about me personally. Yeah, just general uh, advice that you would give to somebody else or general Joe, your views um, on, on, on that matter, really? Well, you know, I go from saying with one breath, people are people and we're all yeah. the same, to yeah. saying that, you know, we do deal with these sort of stresses very differently yeah. and we're affected differently. Yeah. You know, I said earlier that I do, a lot of people ask me, why do yeah. you do this? And do I you? do it because I can yeah. and I do it well. And I have seen people who can't do it and shouldn't be doing it. And there is a, a necessity for a, a level of self-awareness of knowing where your limits are and when you should stop and when you should get out of a situation and how to look after yourself. Um, but to be honest with you, I, I just, I don't know, <laughs> you know. Mm. Um, like I said, I, I don't not sleep. I don't have sleepless nights. I, I, I don't have nightmares. I, I, I can see things in my head. Like I described the two guys being mm. beaten to death in front of us in Herat. Yeah. yeah, I can see that. But my biggest memory from that incident was standing, you know, Masood was over there taking photos of these guys being beaten to death. And I was about to move. I was standing there watching it and thinking, mm, this is pretty heavy duty. And I was about to move and I felt a hand on my right shoulder. I wasn't gripped by somebody who wanted to stop me moving or control me. And it wasn't a tap. It was this very sort of, I can still feel it on yeah. my shoulder and uh, just sort of making me aware that they were there in a very sort of gentle but firm way, and a voice said, you don't need to go over there. And so I stopped, and I didn't even look around to see who it was who'd put their hand on my shoulder. Mm. I just stopped. And I thought, he's right, I really don't need to go over there. Um, so it's that sort of a memory rather than, you know, that no, there's a whole lot of crap that goes on that, mm. that's in my head, but, it, I, you know, I just seem to get on with it. Maybe I'm a bit weird. Maybe people think I'm weird. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I, I think I've, I've become much more circumspect as I've got older and much calmer and also a little bit less um, irritable, you know, <laughs> with things. Um, I'm quite willing to let things take their own course um, I recognise that there are situations that I find myself in that I have no control over and so I don't get stressed about them. Um, but I've seen people just fall apart and be complete messes without any self-awareness. Wow. Yeah. So I know that's a really, that's yeah. not answering your question at all, but, you know, I don't really know what else to say. No, I appreciate that. I mean, again, you have a, I think, I think, 
you know, from a personal perspective, as, as you said, it's, it is very much individual as well, you know. Yeah. Uh, and we can sort of categorize in situations, but it is about dealing with things in our own way and, and getting learning and learning about our, ourselves. ourselves and, and, yeah. and we're not the same people that we were, say, take, you know, 10 years ago, yeah. even a few years ago. So it's that continuous development. And, yeah. And uh, really, you know, it's been insightful listening to yourself. You know, you you definitely have a powerful story, and and uh, I've had the privilege of of listening to the Q Q and As, and and you've had a room full of you know hundred plus journalists that are that you know again you know I've had the privilege of 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 that, and again your time today really very uh, memorable, and thank you for the opportunity. Oh, it's been yeah. my privilege. Yeah. Well, yeah, has. I mean, absolutely, Lynn, and, and and you know, Safraz, you know, uh, and I hugely grateful for you giving us this time and, and I think our listeners will be as well yeah. <laughs> um, because this has been a very special it's very special for me because I'm a I'm a journalist and and for me people like Lynn are, are heroes and uh, I know that there's a lot of stuff in what you've said we, we could we could go on forever but we won't and we can't um, so it's now time to bring this um, canny conversation to a close to hope that our listeners have enjoyed it. If they have, then like, subscribe, share, and until the next time, stay safe. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this Canny Conversation with the Cause. These conversations are based upon the Canny Bites books by Safras Ali, available on Amazon. To find out more, go online and visit Saf's website, pathwaygroup.co.uk, or join him on social media. He can be contacted at safras at pathwaygroup.co.uk. Canny Conversations with the Cause are produced by Pathway Group, who have a mission to change lives through skills and work. And they do this through upskilling and reskilling individuals by getting them firstly into sustainable employment and tackling the talent and skills issues commonly faced by businesses. In addition to their core skills and employability business, Pathway Group also actively promote diversity, equality and inclusion and have initiated causes such as the BAME Apprentice Network, the BAME Apprenticeship Awards and the Festival of Apprenticeships. This is a 1386 audio production.